This is The First Time, Chirp Radio's live storytelling and music series. Every show, we invite a group of storytellers to talk about different firsts and pick a song to go with it. The theme of this show was First Pass. Recorded at Martyrs in Chicago's North Center with music by The First Time 3. Here's your host, Jen Sedini. All right, so our next guest is Sterling McLaughlin. And before he was an award-winning filmmaker, he was my RA at Hampshire College. So I'm going to, yeah, I'm still the same, but with more bills. Like, you don't even need to talk to him after this. Um, But he, I'm going to tell him and his lovely wife, Dawn, and myself all went to school together and basically lived together for a long time. And my very first, very, my first pass experience involves Dawn. Thank you for letting me do this. So Hampshire College had these giant parties, Hampshire Halloween. It was like very trippy, man. Our friends who are EMTs would always joke about dressing up as Hendrix or your mom or something to like freak out the people on acid. Anyways, very naive, 17 when I went to college, and who turned out to be my good lifelong friend Dawn, came up to me with a tray of pot brownies, which I had never seen before. And she's like, would you like a pot brownie? And I said, no, thanks, I'll pass. She goes, don't worry, they're vegan. That really embodied (laughs) our college experience. Also, Dawn is a um, sexual education program coordinator at Lori Hospital, where she works with the trans clinic and has been foia by the right-wing assholes who are having a convention right now. So thank you, Dawn, for all your work. It's like extremely important work. Tucker Carlson can go fuck himself. He doesn't even deserve that. All right. (laughs) Um, So, Sterling is a writer and director, comedy and horror. His film, horror, Pittsburgh accent, horror. His film, Cold War, has been featured in festivals in L.A. and the Midwest. His comedy has been praised as impossibly balanced between endearing and horrifying, while his horror writing has been called super fun and funny with lots of laugh-out-loud moments. You can find him on Instagram talking about rare, out-of-print, and unstreamable movies and physical media, like Sling Blade Criterion Edition Laserdisc. Nerds, chirp nerds, Sterling is for you. He's like the DVD Laserdisc fucking version of all of you all. Um, uh, And then given that he was my RA, he's a man of great resiliency. Sterling McLaughlin, everybody. The first time I went to Studio 8H at Rockefeller Center was on January 9th, 1993, for season 18, episode 10 of Saturday Night Live. But our story starts a few years earlier, more specifically, fourth grade. The play was Hooray to Hollywood, colon, a musical review. And I had two lines. And I'm Franz. You up. Now, keep in mind that Saturday Night Live, or SNL, for those of us in the know, doesn't start until 11.30 on the East Coast. So I didn't know who Hans and Franz were. I didn't know I was supposed to do an accent. I had never stayed up late enough to find out. Still, I won't lie to you, it fucking killed. (laughs) I grew up in a small town in the Poconos that was a bedroom community for lunatics and creative types. My mother, Jamie, is a painter, That makes her a creative type. My father, John, has a PhD in pre-Shakespearean drama, which makes him a lunatic. (laughs) 
Because no normal person has a PhD. Having a PhD is hoarder behavior. It's the academic equivalent of having 40 cats. Naturally, all of our parents' friends were also lunatics and creative types, and their friends, oddly named children, were my friends. So growing up, those were the only career options I was aware of. You either suffered for your art, or you suffered to be the person who knew the absolute most about Chaucer. But as I stood on the stage at St. Paul's Lutheran Day School, what I would later learn is colloquially referred to as a soft room, I realized I didn't have to be an artist like my mother or a lunatic like my father. I could be something that required no suffering at all, a comedian. More specifically, a famous comedian. More specifically, famous. And the key to that pain-free existence was Saturday Night Live. And I was about to get my in. Flash forward to 1993, my best friend's mom was seeing a ponytailed jazz saxophonist named George. He was the kind of guy who liked to tell you unprompted that he didn't do cocaine. <laughs> and I believed him. George was a lunatic, obviously. No sane person would ever take the time to be good at saxophone. And as luck would have it, he was about to be named the newest member of the G.E. Smith and the Saturday Night Live band. Now, out of, the out of the goodness of his heart and or to win the approval of his new girlfriend's kids, George agreed to take a group of us to see the show. We left the Poconos early Saturday morning in the back of George's maroon Econoline van. There were no seat belts in the back of George's van because there were no seats in the back of George's van. So we sat crisscross applesauce on the freezing cold metal floor and bounced all the way to Manhattan. When we arrived at 30 Rockefeller Plaza, or 30 Rock for those of us in the know, George had lots of important saxophone stuff to do, so we sat and watched as the entire show was literally built around us. Simon's then-famous bathtub was directly in front of us, the weekend update desk was off to one side, and Joey Buttafuoco's garage was directly behind us. There were four different Joey Buttafuoco sketches that week, so they used that set a lot. We listened to Bon Jovi do their sound check. At one point, I looked over and was eye-to-eye -eye with the host, Danny DeVito. It turned out we were the same height if I was sitting. But I wasn't there to gawk at celebrities. This was my first pass at seeing where I would be working, who my coworkers would be. Eddie Murphy had gotten on SNL when he was 19, and I was already 13. So I didn't have much time to prepare. George didn't yet have the juice to get us live show tickets. So after we watched the rehearsal, we went to some producer's office, Lauren or Laura. Laura Michaels, I didn't recognize the name. And we watched the show on the TV on a rollaway cart. And when it was over, we all piled into the back of George's seatless, windowless, likely uninsured van and bounced home. But before we left, I made a promise to the universe. I was going to return to Studio 8H, but the next time, I was gonna be on that stage. Years later, I would keep that promise. And until then, all I had to do was wait. You might ask why I thought SNL was going to call me out of the blue to be on their show, but that was how I got all of my roles. There would be an audition for a community theater production, and the next day the director would call me and say, no boys showed up. How do you feel about playing Demetrius and or Lysander? It was community theater, so the offer was always to work for free, 
but I was still offer only. <laughs> this was how I got the role of the paper boy in the streetcar named Desire, and how I became the junior cast member at the Pocono Renaissance Fair, which, as anyone will tell you, is basically the groundlings of northeastern Pennsylvania. <laughs> this was also how I got the starring role in an inadvertently all-white middle school production of Fame. I was Leroy Johnson. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do an accent. In short, there was nothing to make me think my dream of being a not-ready-for-primetime player was even the slightest bit unrealistic. And then, in 1996, I got the call. Pack your bags, we're being evicted. <laughs> now, looking back, my parents' only real crime was believing someone when they told them that they were an accountant. They didn't ask basic follow-up questions like, are you sure you're an accountant? <laughs> the art center that my parents ran was having trouble getting Medicaid to pay their invoices. The woman they gave free art lessons in exchange for doing their books put the payroll taxes on my parents' personal credit card. That's what you know. <laughs> so when things went bad, they went bad really quickly. Sheriff's marshals came and took the house. They took their cars. We had to move into a condo behind a pizza hut. And this presented a few problems for me, most of them emotional. If they could do this to a lunatic and a creative type, the very bedrock of our community, what was to stop them from doing it to me, a soon-to-be-famous comedian? Every fiber of my being told me that what I now needed was financial stability. SNL would have to wait. I would become a businessman. But I had never met a businessman. I was from a follow-your-bliss family, and my bliss had led me to be a 17-year-old high school dropout and ska band frontman. The only time I'd ever seen a pair of khakis was the Gap Girls sketch. But I needed to get really square really quick. So I enrolled at Hampshire College, which was less of a college and more of a socialist apple orchard. My parents, my parents were thrilled, which was a big red flag. Two and a half years later, I had a degree in business. It was suspiciously similar to a degree in video art, but they let you write whatever you wanted on the form, so I had a business degree. <laughs> then one day I got a call from a recruiter. No boys showed up. How do you feel about being a digital art director? I was a working stiff, a salary man. Pretty soon I was the person who knew the absolute most about banner ads for some prime credit cards. I worked all night, multiple times a week, including weekends. All the creative directors were megalomaniacs who sounded like Dr. Evil. It was the furthest thing imaginable from being on Saturday Night Live. The worst part, and this is a true story, my office was directly across the street from 30 Rock. We shared a food court. Every day I would eat my sad $8 peanut butter and jelly sandwich from Witchcraft by Tom Colicchio. And I would look over, and there would be Kristen Wiig or Kenan Thompson eating $8 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that look so much better than mine. <laughs> and now I imagine Kenan saying, actually, can we make it Jason Sudeikis? Okay. I, I imagine Jason saying, hey, I wonder whatever happened to that kid from the Poconos with the cool starter jacket that uh, everyone on SNL was worried was going to come and take our jobs. By the way, I've never touched cocaine. And then Kristen Wiig would say, I don't know, Jason, uh, but the kids were like, uh, he was like 26 or 27 by now. Uh, it's way too old to be a threat to us. Uh, 
I've never touched cocaine either, so. But then one day, believe it or not, the call did come. They'd seen some of my work, and they wanted me at 30 Rock. When I got there, they'd be expecting me. So I took the elevator up to the eighth floor, and for the second time, I was at Studio 8H. Actually, it was less of a call and more of an all-company email. And uh, SNL was on hiatus due to the 2007 Writers Guild strike. But the chief creative officer of the ad agency that owned my ad agency had an announcement, and he was intent on making it in the most cruelly dramatic way possible. We gathered on the floor for a champagne toast where years earlier I had locked eyes with Danny DeVito. They spoke breathlessly about the future of digital integration, and not just banner ads, Facebook ads, and Twitter ads as well. The future was ours, and this was our future. After the toast, I walked up onto the stage, the stage where George had played, the stage that had seen comedy legends like Charles Barkley, Steve Forbes, and Adrian Brody, who, come to think of it, would have made a killer Leroy Johnson. I looked out at the empty seats, and I said out loud to no one in particular, when I said I would be back and that I would be on the stage, I should have been more specific. Now, you might ask why I would want so desperately to work for a show that takes the brightest young minds in comedy and makes them play wives and game show contestants, pretty much exclusively. A show that Carol Burnett has never hosted, but Donald Trump has, twice. But in that moment, it felt like giving up on a silly childhood fantasy was just giving up. And it does feel that way sometimes. And maybe that's a... And in fact, that is a terrible ending to this story. So I'll tell you what I did next. I took every fucking class at the, I could at the Operate Citizens Brigade. I spent a summer in Chicago doing a sketch and writing intensive at Second City, and I made that fucking ad agency pay for all of it. I told them it was for professional development, which depressingly it was, because I got way better at advertising. So eventually, I moved to Evanston with my lunatic wife, our 40 cats, and our oddly named kids. All our friends are creative types and lunatics. And all of their kids are our kids' friends. Except now I have a 15-year mortgage with a 2.6% interest rate and zero credit card debt, which maybe is a little better than being a famous comedian. Maybe. And on the days when I'm feeling particularly lost or hopeless, I take comfort in one undeniable fact. Leslie Jones was 47 when she was cast on SNL, and I'm 43 now. I still have time.
The First Time is hosted by Jen Sedini, with production by Bobby Evers, Andy Vasoyan, and Executive Director Julie Miller. The podcast is edited by Andy Vasoyan, with songs performed by The First Time 3. You can find this and other Chirp podcasts and interviews at chirpradio.org slash podcasts.